Welcome to How I Grew My Practice, the podcast where health professionals share the behind the scenes stories of how they built a thriving practice. Each episode will uncover surprising challenges, victories, and life lessons learned throughout their journeys. Let's get started. Welcome to How I Grew My Practice, a 15 minute podcast presented by Next Health. My name is Alec being joined today by the Dr. Benjamin Turnwald, founder, CEO, and dentist of Turnwald Dentistry based in Illinois. He is here to talk with us about case presentation and case acceptance. Dr. Ben, what's going on? How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. If you don't mind, we start all of these uh, podcasts with just a, a, qu- a quick introduction. Um, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about yourself, how you got into dentistry, how you became a dentist, how you opened your practice. Um, if you can just share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I've been uh, practicing for about 14 years. Um, I uh, moved to Chicago after dental school, which is where my practice is, suburban Chicago. And um, yeah, I got into dentistry. Um, I was always just a big science nerd and I'm the son of two small business owners. And so I knew I wanted to own my own business. So um, I connected medicine with small business and that led me to, um, to to dentistry. And also I know everybody says this, but you know, just wanting to help people and offer a service that, um, you know, you don't feel like you're having to sell to people. It's like a need and um, uh, something uh, cool that you can offer. Very good. Uh, so diving into our topic on case presentation and case acceptance, I know this is going to sound silly. I'm sure you're like, this is second nature to me. Um, but can you define case presentation in your words and explain why case acceptance is so important to your practices bottom line? Yeah, so I would say case presentation is about sharing your knowledge with the patient based on what you see. Um, I think a lot of times in dental school, we think it needs to be this like elaborate um, planned out treatment plan, which a lot of times it does need to be. Um, but I think one of the things that stresses us out about it is that we we feel like we have to make all the decisions as the doctor or the dentist. And um, that's something that I um, have since changed my mind on. Um, so that's case presentation. And then I'll say, I mean, case acceptance really is at the heart of two different things. One is you can't change people's lives and make them healthier if they're not accepting needed treatment. And two, coming from a business aspect, that's how you keep the lights on. That's how you pay your amazing staff. That's how you, you know, keep the office clean and, um, can afford the latest and greatest technology and, um, you know, the best labs and, and X, X, Y, and Z that all basically comes down to being able to turn a profit. So, uh, of course, most importantly is, is, um, our patients and, and giving them really good dentistry and helping them get healthy. But then secondarily is it's also a business. So, I mean, case acceptance is a monster. It's, it's not, um, something that happens in one event. It's, it's definitely a process, but, um, it's really at the heart of, what we do, both from an ethical standpoint and also from a business standpoint. Cool. So you mentioned um, there was kind of a, a school of thought of how you originally learned case presentation versus what you're doing now. Can you share with our audience a little bit more about your kind of your process of how you're going about case presentation today? 
Yeah, so um, in dental school, we're taught that doctor knows best um, and you do your evaluation, you put together your treatment plan and um, you um, prioritize as the doctor what needs to be done first, what needs to be done second. So we call it phase one, phase two, phase three. And um, you just kind of, you decide that, you plan it, you put it together, and then you present it to the patient. And maybe there'll be different options for different phases. And of course, we um, all know that we have to, uh, you know, review benefits and alternatives with our patients. Um, but for the most part, you're basically deciding which problems um, are the most important, what need to be addressed first. And then maybe if there are problems that you don't even talk about, that's, you know, something that you talk about down the line. So that's at least kind of an overall um, uh, overview of how I was taught in dental school. Um, and then also uh, you sort of present it that way. So you think about putting the fires out first and then anything that the patient would want to do from like a cosmetic standpoint is kind of an afterthought once you get them um, stabilized. Um, so that can be unfortunate sometimes because someone might come in wanting veneers or wanting their smile to look better and then you spend a half hour talking about how their gums are unhealthy. Um, and so um, that may be the case and that may be something that's important to bring up to the patient but you might then lose them as a patient because you didn't address why they, why they started coming in to see you in the first place. So really starting from the patient perspective um, and addressing, you're saying addressing their core need of what they actually need from a health perspective and then following um, kind of the aesthetic. Yeah. I mean, everything else is kind of an afterthought. Um, it's, Hey, you have these significant disease um, processes going on, um, we're going to address those first, and then we can talk about doing veneers, or then we can talk about um, getting your, you know, teeth to look better. Um, that that's sort of the the way that we're taught in dental school to do it is, you know, to get the diseases under control first, and then and then move to the fun stuff. Makes sense. Um, I mean, speaking as a patient, I know that there's such a uh, I could say a stereotype perhaps that in medical, in dental, you have lots of cases being presented to you and it feels like there's a lot of pressure uh, for you to kind of make a decision you're not really sure. Um, speaking of pressure, there's obviously a huge cost. I guess, how, uh, how, can you, how do you address financial concerns during case presentations? And like, what are some strategies um, to help overcome like those cost barriers that patients have? Um. So I, th I think there are different ways to do that. Um, one, I think you need to get to know your patient from the onset and just really understand where they're coming from, what they value. Um, and I do that in my practice doing a 20 to 30 minute preclinical interview with um, all of my adult patients. And one of the things that I do hear a lot from um, those interviews. And one of the questions that I ask is, you know, why did you leave your last dentist? And I, there's usually three top things that I hear. One is that I, I was treated rudely at the front desk. Two is that the hygienist um, was too heavy handed or did uncomfortable cleanings. And three, I felt like I was being sold treatment. Um, and so the sold treatment one, I think, is where we really have an opportunity as a profession 
to really kind of switch gears and um, change the discussion to make it a little bit more um, patient centered so that the patient feels, I mean, this is what I have on my website. I, you're in control. You're in a judgment-free zone. I'm good. I'm, you're going to be involved in the planning process. Um, I'm going to tell you, you know, what I see and, and what I would do, but that doesn't mean that's what we end up doing. It's going to be, you know, very, very collaborative. So I think as you do that and you get to know your patient um, and you can also show them some empathy for that instead of just being like, here's the treatment plan. It's going to be $5,000, take it or leave it. You know, your, um, your financial problem is your financial problem. I think, I think one offering them first figuring out what they, what it is that they want and what it is that they value. Cause if there are certain things that they don't value, then you're probably not going to end up doing that service or that dentistry for them. And that might be okay. It might not, it might, and it might. For me, sometimes, you know, if someone doesn't value keeping their teeth, okay, I'm going to help you with your emergencies until one by one, you lose your teeth, and then you get to the point where you can't eat a steak anymore, and then you start to value um, your teeth, and then you come to me and you're like, okay, I know we talked about this, I'm ready to restore my teeth. Um, okay, now we can have a different type of discussion than we could five years ago when it wasn't important for you when you lost that first molar. Um, so I think getting to know the patients um, and also getting them to own the problems. So if someone doesn't think that they have a problem, they're not going to have value for it. So um, that's where the concept of transparent dentistry comes in. And, and I'm a huge advocate of photography um, and, um, you know, scanning. Uh, you can only show, show so much on an x-ray and patients have no idea what they're looking at when you're reading an x-ray anyway. Um, but if you can show somebody somehow using a visual aid what is going on in their mouth, it, then they, they can start to own the problem. And that's going to be the first step towards getting them to, to start to value it. Um, and then they're going to have to also understand what the consequences are of letting that disease or that problem um, progress. Um, and then kind of the final step is actually how much money do they have in their bank account? Can they actually afford it. Um, that's kind of like the last step um, that I consider um, because, you know, I've had um, patients that are, you know, making minimum wage and somehow they find the way to do a $10,000 treatment plan because the treatment that we've talked about, they have such high value for, they go up to the bank and they take out a loan or they you know, have an aunt or an uncle who is willing to sponsor the treatment for them. Um, people, people will find the resources if they value something, you know, and then you have someone who comes in driving the brand new sports car who doesn't want to do anything um, and spend any money. And you know, it's not a, an actual financial problem. It's the fact that they don't value um, what the treatment is. So I think you have to work on getting to know your patient getting them to accept the problems they have and, and then getting them to value it before you really analyze their checkbook. So I never, you know, try to read a book by its cover based on a patient's car or, you know, a patient's purse or the kind of clothes that they're wearing because I've done, you know, full mouth reconstructions on every type of patient. The trust uh, component makes all the sense in the world, uh, especially I, I guess I, Dr. Holm, I think I mentioned to you, I have Marilyn Bridge. 
So I had this big procedure where I had to decide if this is something that I wanted to put to your point, you know, do I value, am I going to put my money towards? Um, and something that I really appreciated about my dentist was that he just, he really felt like he was on my team. It felt like he was in my corner and gave me the time to come to the conclusion that it's something that I, th I think that I, I needed uh, just from a health perspective. Um, so I think to, to give the space and time makes a ton of sense and thinking about a patient from a long-term perspective um, is I think vital to keeping a patient for long-term so that they don't, you know, they don't go somewhere else. Um, but you mentioned just like going about educating somebody, they're not gonna pay for something that they don't value. What are ways that you're educating patients um, so they actually come full circle to see the value that, you, that you're presenting? Like what are the different strategies that you put in place to make sure that somebody's learning about what you're offering? Yeah, so I think, I think one of it is just time. Um, you know, in my practice, it's time spent with the doctor. Um, you know, depending on what type of um, practice you, you're in, you know, and how heavily contracted you are with insurance and, and what type of patient volume you have, I think that we're, we've become so like, um, it's become so normalized to just see a doctor for like two minutes whenever you have a problem um, that, that's kind of translated into dentistry as well. Um, so, I mean, just seeing somebody um, for 20 or 30 minutes and talking to them, I get so many compliments on people being like, I have never had a dentist spend this much time with me before. Um, and that automatically increases your credibility and your trust because you've done something different than every other dentist has done for them potentially. Um, so, uh, and people want to be heard. They want to tell you their horror stories about the dentist. They want to tell you how awful it was to get their third molars out. And like, yes, we've heard those stories a million times, but um, you know, we're, we're so like, um, it's become so normalized to, you know, talk as fast as you can when the doctor walks in the room. And I'm talking about medical doctors as well, like that you, you're, you're just kind of programmed to do that. And so I think uh, you earn a lot of trust when you just spend the time with the patient. And, you know, one of my favorite things that I love hearing um, when someone comes into a, a preclinical interview with me or even a second opinion or a consultation is they'll like throw a treatment plan at me on the, on the consultation table. And they'll be like, I don't think I need this. My, my current dentist or my last dentist told me that I need um, a deep cleaning uh, and I need um, this crown on this tooth and it was going to be all this money and I just, I don't think I need it. And so I know as soon as I hear that, that that patient was either described what, what they needed and not why, um, and it was probably done pretty quickly. So they, um, the reason I like this is because they come in and I can see the fees on there. And uh, my particular practice is I'm kind of known as the not very cheap doctor on the block. And so I can see right away that my fees are going to be higher. Um, but I take that as a challenge because then what I do is I probably, I almost always see the same thing that the last dentist probably saw. I think where I, where I'm a little bit different is the way that I describe it to the patient. So in, instead of telling the patient, um, let's use um, the deep cleaning as an example, instead of telling the patient that, um, Hey, you have gum disease, you're going to need this deep cleaning and it's going to be $500. I would say, okay, let me take a look at your x-rays. Okay. Yeah. So 
one thing that I'm seeing on your x-rays that I'm concerned about is, um, so you can see where this white stuff, you can see your teeth and then you can see where this white stuff is, kind of looks like sheep's wool. Yeah, yeah, I see that. Okay, that's the bone around your tooth. Then I take my hand and I'd be like, this is where your bone should be. This is where your bone's at now. Um, so in a nor normal, healthy adult, you. So what's happened over time is that you've had permanent destruction in your jawbone um, that has um, caused you to lose, lose support around that um, around those teeth, which can ultimately lead um, to that uh, tooth being lost. And then I pause. Pause for effect. And you're almost always, as soon as you tell someone there's permanent destruction of anything in their body, they're going to be like, how do I fix that? Okay. Uh, well, there's different ways to fix that. Probably the most straightforward be, would be to do some gum therapy with one of my hygienists. Well, how much does that cost? It's about $800. And then the wheels start turning. You pause again. And then I almost have a 100% success rate with what we call scaling and root planing. But a lot of times, if you can just, one, make the patient understand what, what the condition actually is, what's going to happen if they don't do anything about it, and then use a soft word to describe it. Like, who wants to have a deep cleaning done? Or who wants to have a scaling and root planning done? Like, that sounds awful. And I know that my hygienists are um, trained to give very comfortable um, cleanings and, and uh, make sure the patient's completely comfortable and numb during scaling and root planning. So I'm confident calling it gum therapy. And so then that patient leaves who just told me, the last dentist told me I needed a deep cleaning for $500 and they're walking out of my practice with a scheduled appointment for an $800 gum therapy appointment, which is the exact same thing. And it, so it's not, it's not so much about charging more or charging less. It, it comes down to, I was able to help that person make the right health decision because of the way that I spent time with them and the way that I discussed the, um, the problem with them. Dr. Turnwald, is there one specific story, uh, perhaps like a, a case that you presented where you're just very proud that you're able to turn the decision of the patient from probably walking away from a decision that would really hurt their life from a health perspective and end up being influenced um, in making the decision to actually see a procedure? And I'm sure you're thinking I have hundreds of these things, have thousands of these things, but is there one specific story that really resonates with you? Um, I mean, I, there was just a patient that I finished up treatment on maybe six months ago and, um, he was a long-term patient of mine and, you know, I had seen him probably, well, he's been in the patient, he's been in the practice longer than I have, um, since I bought my practice from another doctor. And I had told him like early on in my career that I was seeing some wear on his teeth and that he should get a night guard. And my verbal skills probably weren't the best back when I told him that, but he remembered it. And never did the night guard. And so one by one, I started seeing him for these emergency appointments where um, he was breaking teeth and he needed, he had already had like two implants by that point. And his, his wife was telling him his teeth were starting to look short. And um, uh, he was really concerned about being able to eat steak. Um, he was, I don't know, maybe in his sixties. And he's like, I asked him, do you want to be able to eat steak in your seventies? And he said, yes. And I'm like, we should probably have a further discussion about things. So he agreed to come back and I got photographs and full records and um, went through kind of a list of all the things that I saw. And um, it, it ended up turning into a full mouth reconstruction because now at this point he needed um, 
he needed to have a crown or a restoration on every single tooth. And he told me, um, you know, I'm really mad at myself because I feel like I could have prevented this if I just would have listened to what you said 10 years ago. And so he's like, I'm really glad, I'm really glad we're having this conversation now. He's like, I wish it wouldn't have cost me $60,000, but I'm really glad that we're having the conversation because it is really important for me to be able to chew a steak. And so I was able then to do that patient's um, treatment and uh, restore his teeth so that, um, yes, of course, they look really great and, and everything um, I was happy with. But more importantly, he's he now knows that he's making the right decision to prevent this problem from progressing in the future. And also, you know, he's confident now that he's going to have teeth to chew with, you know, as he goes through um as he goes through life. So it's not always about something that big. And I don't want, I, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, say that I do full mouth reconstructions all the time. I do a couple a year. Um, but those types of examples, I think are the things that really make you feel good when you go home at the end of the day, because you're like, man, I, what I, what I say to people actually can, you know, have a profound effect on their lives. That's awesome. Um, and that is quite a story. Um, it's a, uh, this man really must love steak. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Turmel, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that we're at the 21 minute mark, um, but really great having you on. And I know that we'll be doing this again soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dr. Ben. All right, see ya.